You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We've been coming through the gospel of Matthew together. And we are now in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. So you can go ahead and get there in the Word. In the very back, can you hear me? You can hear me clearly? These words are important. I want you to hear it. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for letting us sing to you. It's such a sweet privilege, Lord, to get to sing to you. And uh, Lord, thank you that we can now come to your word. And Lord, we believe that truth that unless, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Unless you build the house, Lord, we labor in vain. So please, God, do a mighty work. Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. Lord, we confess that we can't understand it, and we certainly can't feel the weight of any of these truths that you speak unless you, by your Spirit, help us. Oh, God, please help us. Speak to us. Speak to us, Lord, this morning. We love you, Lord, and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. What comes to mind when you hear about the law? The law. You hear about somebody starts talking about the law of God. What comes into your mind? You know, what, um, what feelings arise in your heart when you begin to hear about the law of Moses. If I had you a line there, some of you have those study guides. If, uh, if, I, if I had on some lines there for you to fill it in, I'd just say, hey, what comes to your mind? What, what, what feelings arise in your heart when you hear about the law of Moses? What would you write down? So just think about that for a minute. What comes into your heart when you hear of the law of God? Now, there's common thoughts out there. And let me just mention some of these. I think people tend to think of the law of God, the law of Moses, as the bad guy. This tyrant. Jesus' enemy, right? Jesus, we just needed, all we needed was, you know, the law is the problem, and we needed Jesus to get us out of this. The law is the bad guy. The law of God is the tyrant. Somebody might say, I'm not under that law. I'm not under that Dictator. Maybe they think of the law of God as being oppressive, or when they think of the law of Moses, they think of legalism, or something that's absolutely opposed to, opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some may even think of the law of God as being the enemy of love, right? Like those people care about the law of God, we care about loving, which is an interesting thought because Jesus said the summary of the whole law is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the biblical way to think about, feel toward God's law? And let me just give you some scripture that I think uh, may influence you. Psalm, Psalm 1, uh, verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. For Psalm 19 
Verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. Converting the soul. Psalm 119, verse 47. Let me read this verse to you. It says this, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I find delight in your commandments, which I love. Psalm 119, verse 70, interesting verse. It says, Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. They're unfeeling, but I delight in your law. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. I love it. It's my meditation all the day long. This is a biblical way to feel towards the law of God. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but maybe that's just, maybe that's just Old Covenant stuff. That's Old Testament. Saints think that way. But I want you to understand that if you read through your Old Testament and you, and you grab these scriptures that speak uh, of, a, of a future covenant, of something that's coming in the future, they, these scriptures also speak positively, not negatively, but positively about the law of God. I'll give you just, just a few examples as quick as I can. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, verse 1, or verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, so looking look into the future, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here you've got Old Testament scriptures speaking about the law positively in the future. You go read Ezekiel chapter 11 where it's talking about the new covenant saying he'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And then it tells you why. That you might obey his statutes and his rules. It doesn't speak about the new covenant as well. You just have forgiveness, but forget about God's standards and obedience and law. No, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit that you might obey these laws. So the law, the law of God is not spoken about in the new covenant as negative, but as positive. Think about uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, where it says a new covenant, a new covenant I make with you. And if you read about that new covenant, it does not say you have forgiveness of sins. Forget about the law. It says, no, I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to put my law in your heart. Maybe you'll say things like, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. So negative feelings towards God's law is unbiblical. And even in the new covenant, it's unchristian. It's unbiblical and unchristian. Now, there's a name for this kind of disposition, this kind of negative feelings towards God's law. There's a name for it, and that name is antinomianism. If you like jotting things down, jot down antinomianism. Anti means against, and nomos is God's law. So against God's law, antinomianism, anti-God's law. Let me explain that. So if if legalism is all law, then antinomianism is no law. 
You know, if legalism is it's just you just got God's standard of his law and it's just the law in me. And it's up to me to to keep that law, to be righteous in his sight, to be sanctified. It's up to me to do that. It's just me and the lost, all lost legalism. Well, if that's what legalism is, antinomianism is no law. Forget it. Set it aside. Be done with the commands and demands and standards that come from God. Now, this antinomianism can be, it can be just outright in your face. Like, just, just take the law of Moses and cut it out of the book. Take the commands and demands and just cut them out of the book. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson cut the miracles out. You cut the, the commands out. You cut the law out. Right? But oftentimes, antinomianism is more subtle than that. It's not quite that clear. It's usually more subtle than that. It's usually marked by a distaste for commandments in God's word or, or language of obedience. There's just a revulsion towards the language of obedience. That's a disposition of antinomianism. You know, tell me, you can tell me what Jesus did, but don't tell me what he commands me to do or don't do. It's that sort of disposition is a subtle antinomianism. You know, I'm, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law, but they understand that they understand that wrongly as if to be under grace means you just say, forget about what God has told me to do. But what does the scripture say? Titus two, verse 11 and 12. It says the grace of God. It doesn't divide these two things. It says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. To deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Being under grace is not to be lawless. It's not to hate God's commands. Or to have an allergic reaction to language of obedience. That's not to be under grace. Now one description, getting closer to the passage that we're going to be in. Matthew 5, 19. You're already there. Listen to this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes this law, whoever relaxes these commands, this is the, the disposition of antinomianism to relax, relax, to loosen, just loosen up about what God has said to do or not to do. Just to relax it. Now, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians. We've already established that. It's for the disciples of Jesus. Some have called this the Christian counterculture. I love that. You read through the Sermon on the Mount and you've got all the cultures, the godless, worldly cultures of this, of this world. But then here we read in Matthew 5 through 7, we read about this is the culture of the church. This is what Christians are like. This is the standards and the expectations of Jesus' people. This is the Christian counterculture. Now, this Sermon on the Mount that we're in right now is a killer of antinomianism. It's a destroyer of antinomianism. Now, you see that in a lot of ways. But you see, you see it especially in the section that we're about to get into right now in verse 17 all the way to verse 48. Now, we're not going through all that today, but we're entering into this section, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, 
verse 48. So think about, I want you to think about what we've already covered. We already covered the characteristics of a Christian and the Beatitudes, verse 1 through 12. The characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom. Okay? And then we've covered the, the, the citizen of the kingdom, their influence on the world, salt of the earth, light of the world. In verse 13 through 16. And now we're entering into verse 17 through 48. The laws of the kingdom. King Jesus has given laws of the kingdom. Now, before we zone in to our two verses, I want us to talk for just a minute about this section. Let me just explain a few things about this section. The laws of the kingdom, verse 17 through 48. Now, the foundational statement, the general statement is verse 17 through 20. So let's read it. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have this general statement. I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. You've got Christ and the law and then how Christians should interact with the law and the prophets, with the scriptures of God. Okay. And then flowing out of that are six examples, six examples of the laws of the kingdom. You see that in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. And you see it in this pattern. What you notice, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And then Jesus is going to say, but I say to you. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, but Jesus is going to say, but I say to you. And this is the pattern in these six statements. You have heard it said this, but I'm saying to you this. And Jesus is laying out laws of the kingdom. Now, it's really important that you understand this, and we'll talk more about this a couple weeks from now, so, but just really quickly. It's really important that you understand that this is not Moses versus Jesus. This is not, you know, you heard, you, you, you read about Moses saying this, but I'm saying this. It's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a, a Pharisee misinterpretation of the law versus Jesus' right interpretation of the law. So this is, so when you're reading You've heard it said, but I say to you, this is, you know, the Pharisees, they interpret like this, but I'm telling you it's like this. That's what you have in these six statements, okay? Now, why do I think this way? Now, really, I'm going to give you just five really quick points. We'll talk about it later if you, do, if you can't keep up with them. Really quickly, why do we see it this way? One, it doesn't say it is written. It is written. It is written. It says you've heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. So we're not talking about Moses versus Jesus. Number two. These aren't all quotes from the law. Go read the last one, the very last one, and it says that we're to love our neighbor and, and hate our enemies. That's nowhere to be found in the law of Moses. Nowhere to be found. Okay, so we're not quoting Moses. And then, you know, there's some stuff that Moses has said in here for sure, but this is not a list of Moses said this and Jesus says this because Moses didn't even say that last one. Number three. Verse 17 that we're digging in today, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Wouldn't it be strange that when he began to talk about the laws, he says, forget about Moses, say, listen to me. 
That would be a strange uh, uh, inconsistency there. Number four, we're warned in verse 19 about relaxing the law. And that's exactly what he's saying the Pharisees are doing. They're relaxing the law. How? They're just, they're just giving these external commands like don't murder. Jesus takes it deeper into hate. Like don't commit adultery. Jesus takes it deeper into lust. They've relaxed the commandments by making it merely external. Nothing. They missed the point of the heart of the law. And lastly, but not least, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives you examples. You see, the Pharisees just had this external righteousness. You must exceed that. It must be deeper than that. And he goes into the laws of the kingdom. So if you get that good, praise the Lord. If you don't, uh, meditate on it a bit and we'll hit that again, God willing, a couple weeks from now. Now, coming back to this. This whole section, verse 17 through 48, is an antinomian killer. It, it kills antinomianism. Now, why do I say that? I mean, did you hear the opening statement? I didn't come to abolish the law. Don't relax the commandments. Did you see these laws? The, the Pharisees are, are law relaxers, is what he's rebuking here. And he's calling Christians to a place of deeper obedience, of heart obedience. This is not antinomianism. This is not a revulsion to standards and commands and expectations on his people from God. It kills antinomianism. Let me give you a quick example. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. And I want to mention this one because it's such a familiar one. Again, we'll come to this a few weeks from now. But let me just mention it quickly. He says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. True. But he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. He's going after not just the external thing in his people, but the lust in the heart. He said, lust in the heart, you've already committed adultery. And then he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to go to, go to heaven, Maine, than to go to hell with two hands. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell with two eyes. You get what he's saying here? Now, how does the antinomian want me or your pastors to preach that verse, that, that command? How do antinomians want us to preach that? Now, now, the most outright antinomian would say, well, just cut it out. Just skip it. Skip it. Cut it out. Don't preach stuff like that because those are commands. Those are even heart commands. Those are even warnings about hell. So cut that stuff out. But I want you to understand that the more subtle version can sound something like this. Preacher, just be more gospel-centered. Be more gospel-centered. Now hear me out on this because I love gospel-centeredness. I think gospel-centeredness is glorious, not because it's our idea, but because God's Word is gospel-centered. It's gospel-saturated. What Christ has done, the, the duns in Christ come before the dues of obedience. So I love gospel-centeredness. But so often, hiding under the banner of a so-called gospel-centeredness is an antinomianism. And they want you to preach it something like this. Jesus confronts lust. And look, all of us have lusted. All of us are guilty. Thank God for the cross and forgiveness of sins. Now that's true. 
But you got to understand, that's not what this is teaching. Jesus is leaning in saying, lust is adultery. Cut off your hand or you're going to go to hell. Do you catch that? And the antinomian doesn't want you to preach it that way. They, they have a distaste, an allergic reaction to commands and demands of the scripture. They believe a half gospel, a gospel that forgives, wipes the record clean, but not a gospel that can purify and make you more like Christ and cause you to obey. So this section especially is a killer of antinomianism. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in verses 17 through 20. 17 and 18 is Christ and the law. That's where we're at today. And 19 and 20 is Christians and the law. And God willing, that's where we'll be next week. You notice verse 19, it says, therefore. So he's going to turn the corner in verse 19 and 20. We'll see that next week to Christians and the law. Let's come back to the verse, the couple verses that we're in. Okay. So with all that in mind, let's come to verse 17 and 18. Do not think, look at, look at it carefully. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now we're going to take this in two headings, just two headings. Number one, we'll spend most of our time here. Number one is this. Jesus is not the law abolisher. He's the law fulfiller. Jesus is not the law abolisher. He's the law fulfiller. We see that right there in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. The law of the prophets. Now, what is that? What is the law and the prophets? That's your Think about it. That's your entire Old Testament. It's the law and the prophets, your entire Old Testament. This phrase is repeated uh, throughout Matthew. In Matthew 7, I believe in uh, Matthew 22, the same phrase to refer to the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the word of God. This would have been uh, the listeners of Jesus on that mountain. This would have been all the scripture that they had at that time. I didn't come to abolish the scriptures, the written word of God. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he says to him here. And so Jesus tells them, don't think that. What does it mean? Don't think I came to abolish. What does it mean to abolish? It means to destroy it, to demolish it, to disintegrate it. I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to ignore it. I didn't come to set it aside. Jesus came to abolish some things. Second Timothy 1.10 tells us he came to abolish death. But he did not come to abolish or destroy the law and the prophets. Now, important question. Why would anybody think that? So if you were one of his disciples sitting on that mountain, or one of the, you know, a member of the crowd just kind of listening on, why would anybody think that Jesus had come? Why would they be tempted to think that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets? I'll give you two reasons, I think. One, because he didn't look like the, the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus did not look like the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, I want you to think about this. The Pharisees and the scribes, they had a reputation for being strict law keepers. 
That's their reputation. These, these scribes, these Pharisees, these are the ones that really care about the law. So you see the problem. If Jesus doesn't look like them, then maybe he's come to abolish the law and the prophets? Is that what's going on here? You think about the scribes and Pharisees. They had, they had added to the law. They're holding to it in an external way, external obedience only, and they've added to it. Mark 7 says that, that they teach as, as doctrine the commandments of men. They're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. They're adding man-made religion, man-made commandments to God's word. And in doing that, they miss the very heart of it. And Jesus gets the heart of the law. He's the real law keeper. But he doesn't, he's not submitting to their man-made religion. Therefore, he doesn't look like him. So maybe somebody would be tempted to think, man, these are the law people, you know, the Pharisees and, and scribes, and Jesus doesn't look like them. Now, a couple examples would be the way Jesus dealt with the Sabbath, for example. Pharisees had added all these things, you know, to the Sabbath. You know, there were man-made commands that went beyond God's command. And Jesus is not submitting to their man-made religion. So did Jesus come to do away with the law and the prophets? You see why they'd be tempted to think that? Or, or the way Jesus associated with sinners. Remember, he was sitting with the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. He's sitting there with them, telling them, telling them to repent, that he's the doctor they need to come to and they need to repent. You remember that? And the Pharisees come and say, why is your master sitting with these tax collectors and sinners? He didn't look like them. They had added man-made statues to the commands, and he, he didn't look like them. And so maybe he's come to abolish the law of the prophets. God, Jesus says, no, I haven't. A second reason would be Jesus' authority. Now, this is beautiful. I want you to think about this. This is beautiful. When Jesus spoke, the Bible tells us he spoke with great authority. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 29... I'm going to start in verse 28, actually. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Which, by the way, is how we need to be coming through the Sermon on the Mount. Just astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So think about that. Jesus is teaching like one that has authority not like the scribes. So, so try to picture the scribes' teaching versus Jesus' teaching. And what the scribes would be like, the scribes would, you know, all of their authority came from the text. It came from what Moses had said, which is actually a really good thing, right? Unless you misinterpret it, unless you got it wrong. But when they would hear Jesus speak, he wouldn't just speak just from Moses, but he would say things like, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm telling you something. He would speak like a king. He would speak like none of the scribes could speak. None of us can speak today. He would speak as a king, giving authoritative commands, demands, interpretations, because he is God incarnate. And they heard that, and if you would have been there, and you could have heard Jesus' teaching. You might have been tempted to think, man, he's abolishing the law and the prophets. What do we need Moses for? Listen to the way this man speaks. No one ever spoke like this man. What do we need the prophets for? We've got this prophet. And you would have been tempted to think that way because of the authority of the words of King Jesus. 
He don't teach like the scribes. No one ever spoke like this man. And so Jesus comes in and he says, I have not come. Listen, you might be tempted to think that way, but I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, bring this into present day, okay? Bring it into our modern context. Why do so many Christians today seem to believe that Jesus has abolished the law? Why do so many Christians today seem to believe that Jesus has abolished the law? And this time I'm going to give you three reasons, okay? Give you three reasons. I love numbers. Why do Christians today seem to think Jesus came to abolish the law? Number one, antinomian pride. Antinomian pride. Here's what I mean. You can tell me what Jesus did for me. Give me that grace. I like that. But don't tell me what I'm supposed to be doing and not doing. Don't give me standards. That's that pride. That's that Psalm 2-3. The nations raised. They say, let us break his bonds from us. We do what we want to do. That antinomian pride hates commands and demands. Give me comfort. Don't give me conviction. Give me the comfort of the gospel. Don't give me the conviction of the law. It's that antinomian pride. This kind of pride is interesting. This kind of pride doesn't want anybody else to obey either. You know that? They don't want anybody else to obey. Anybody else starts getting really serious about the Word of God and wanting to obey the least of the commandments and, and, and please their Lord through obedience, what do they immediately say about them? Legalist. Legalism. And it's a wrong, it's a wrong understanding. Legalism is not being serious about obeying God's Word. This is in the New Testament, James 1.21. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only. That antinomian pride doesn't want to obey, and they don't want anybody, anybody else to obey either. Now, second reason. Remember, the, the question is, the question is, why do so many Christians today think Jesus has abolished the law? Second answer, they believe that the law of Moses was for Israel, but not for Gentiles. For Israel, but not for Gentiles. Now, go with me here. That's true and false. Okay? So, so, so yeah, he, he got rid of that law, right? Because that was for Israel. It's not for us. not for Gentiles like us, the nations like us. That's just for Israel. Okay? True and false. Okay? True, and this is important, that the law of Moses was given to Israel. It's a true statement. You need to, that's important that you understand that. Help you understand a lot of stuff that's in there. And it's also true... That there are parts of the law that were given for Israel and they would end with the coming of the Messiah. Okay, Through Israel is coming a Messiah, Christ. And when that Messiah comes, there's some parts of the law of Moses that would end with the coming of the Messiah. Now, some of this is really easy to understand, right? Think about animal sacrifices. Israel was supposed to do these animal sacrifices. It was a command from God that they would sacrifice these lambs and these other sacrifices, right? But here's the deal. The book of Hebrews tells us that all that was meant to be a shadow. To, ta- to tell us about the true lamb that would come. 
That when a lamb was slaughtered and his blood was shed and the sins of the people were symbolically laid on that animal and it died as a substitute in the place of the sinner. That that was a symbol, was a picture that Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And once the substance has arrived, you don't need the shadow. The shadow has done its duty. It's fulfilled. So we read the law. It's not abolished. We don't say forget about reading that stuff. No, we read it and we learn of substitution and the sacrifice of Jesus. But we don't teach our children to do sacrifices. Why? Because it was a shadow that ended with the coming and death of our Messiah, of Christ. Maybe another example, and I think this is helpful if you grab this. Circumcision. Ceremonies. Think about the ceremonies. Think about the food laws in the Old Testament. Circumcision, ceremonies, food laws. What were these for? All of these things were for setting apart Israel from the nations around them. And they did a really good job. I mean, literally, these people were called the circumcision and those people were called the uncircumcision. Think about those food laws and the effect it has. You can read it in Acts 10. That when you have these certain things you can eat, you tend to not go around these people to eat all these other things, right? So these food laws, these ceremonies, they're meant to separate out Israel from the nations. Now, why would God want to do that? Why? Because he promised that through this nation, Israel, is coming his Messiah. And so he's setting these people apart and through them is coming the Messiah, the Christ. And once that Messiah comes, once that Christ comes, is God still interested in setting apart Israel from the nations? And the answer is no. It's not interested in setting apart the nation of Israel from the nations. Therefore, these laws, ceremonies, circumcision, food laws are done away with. They've, they've, they have been fulfilled. They have, they have completed their purpose. Now, we see that clearly. You can go to Mark 7, 19, where Jesus, he, he calls all foods clean as an example. You can go to Acts 10 with Cornelius and that situation where God tells Peter all foods clean and you ought to go in with these Gentiles because he's not trying to keep Israel from the Gentiles anymore. One body, Jew and Gentile. Now, one verse is important. I know you might get confused because this is taking it takes a little longer to get this. But just go with me here. Hang tight. Remember what we're answering. Why do some people today tend to think that Jesus has abolished the law? Well, because because there are things within the law of Moses that we don't practice anymore. But it's not because it's abolished. It's fulfilled. OK, go, go with me to, to Ephesians chapter two. I'm going to talk fast, so listen fast. Okay? Interesting phrase in Ephesians 2, verse 15. This is something that it says Jesus did. Look at Ephesians 2, 15. This is what Jesus did. What did he do? 2, 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What? I thought you said you didn't come to abolish the law. This says abolishing the laws of commandments. And what's this all about? One thing you could kind of note is this is not the same Greek word. That doesn't answer everything. But abolishing in Matthew 5, 17 and abolishing here is not the same Greek word. Just note it. Note that. But I want you to understand what's going on here by just seeing the context. Okay. Look at this. Verse 11. 
Alright, go with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So you see what he's doing? You got those Gentiles. That's what you Ephesians were, you Gentiles, you uncircumcision, called that by the circumcision. See that divide? Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from, from Christ, alienated from the common wealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. You hearing that? You Gentiles, you were separate from Christ. You were without God. You were without hope. And you were, you were apart. You were separate from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel separated from these Gentiles. Verse 13. But now something has happened. Listen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Who's us both? Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. You made us both one. And it's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a dividing wall that kept Gentiles from Israel. And it's in parts of the law. You see it. Like those food laws, like the circumcision, like those ceremonies. It's a dividing wall. And then, and then now, in that context, think of verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments, expressing ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now here, why am I saying this? Here's you got to understand. Some people make that mistake. Wait a minute. We don't do sacrifices. We don't do circumcision. We don't do these ceremonies. We don't do these food laws. So the laws abolished, right? No, it's just been fulfilled. Its purpose was to put a dividing wall up to protect Israel. But God doesn't want that dividing wall anymore. The Messiah has come. All nations, the gospel must go. No more Dividing wall. Now, very quickly, there's other parts in the law of Moses as you read through it. And go with me with this phrase. There are revelations in the law of Moses. We see revelation of God's eternal unchanging standard of righteousness. This binding on all men everywhere. You catch that? There's an unchanging, eternal standard of righteousness that didn't begin with creation in Genesis 1. It didn't begin with the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20. It didn't begin there. It's eternal standards, righteous standard of God that's binding on all men everywhere, not just Israel. And that is revealed to us in the law of Moses. We can see it there. Think about your Ten Commandments of don't murder and don't commit adultery. Think about those commands about compassion towards the poor and needy. These are demands of God. These are standards of God. It's a standard of God that goes back to before time began and it's revealed to us in Moses' law. Now, how do we know what fits into that category? How do we know what fits in that category? This is like the eternal righteous standard of God in the law of Moses and this is just for Israel and is gone when the Messiah comes. How do we know what fits in that first category? And I think you can take two 
two principles into that. One, uh, in, in a big way, it's self-evident, right? You read, you shall not murder. And you say, was that just for Israel? Everybody else can murder, but not Israel. And you think, no, that's dumb. Okay? This is the standard of God coming out in the law of Moses that's binding on all men everywhere. But then you read, you know, be circumcised. Is that one binding on all men everywhere? So and there's a sense in which you read through the Old Testament and it's self-evident what is this eternal standard of God binding on all men everywhere and what is for Israel and ends with the coming of the Messiah. And then second, a second principle to take in to figure that out is read your New Testament. And your New Testament puts it on display. It tells you something like what we just read about the food laws or what we just referenced about the food laws in Acts 10 and, and, and Mark 7. Like, 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 think about that for a minute. That, that The New Testament is telling you some things that give way with the coming of the Messiah, but it also gives you many commands and demands and standards. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Go read those letters, those epistles, Romans and Ephesians. And there are these, there are these commands and these demands from God that give you insight into what in the law of Moses is the eternal standard binding on all men everywhere. Now, number three. Now, it took us a while, so don't be confused, okay? What question are we answering? Why does, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Why does so many, why do many Christians today think that Jesus has abolished the law and the prophets? One, antinomian pride. Two, well, that's for Israel, not for Gentiles. And then three, they may say something like this. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Now, that would be a true statement. If you're in Christ, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. In fact, it'd be a biblical statement. Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. Okay? But the problem is that idea of I'm not under the law gets misinterpreted to mean, oh, Jesus did abolish the law and the prophets. And I want us to deal with that real quickly. So let's seek to understand, what is this phrase, Romans 6, 14, I'm not under the law, what does it mean? Okay, just a few things quickly. Quickly, but hopefully clearly. It can't mean, it cannot mean, I'm not under the law, therefore I'm free to disobey the law. Because what does the next verse say, verse 15? What then, shall we sin? Shall we sin? Since we're under grace, shall we just sin? And he says, certainly not. So it can't mean disobedience to the law. It also cannot mean, well, the law is the problem. The law is the bad guy. The law is the tyrant. That's the problem. The real problem in life is that law and Jesus, and the law is Jesus' enemy, and now I'm under Jesus, under grace, not the law. It can't mean that. Let, let, me, let me quickly tell you why. Romans, still in Romans, you know, I was reading from, or quoted from chapter 6, but chapter 7, verse 12 says this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, it says the law is not the problem. Okay? So if you hear I'm not under the law like the law is a problem, that ain't right. Look at verse 14. Or, or listen to verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Do you catch that? The law's, the law's not the problem. I'm the one sold under sin. God's holy, righteous standard is not the problem. I'm the problem. 
I'm the problem sold under sin. So if you read, I'm not under the law, as if the law is the problem, you're wrong. That's not what we're saying here. So what are we saying? Again, in Romans 6 and 7, it speaks about, in Romans 7, verse 1 through 4, it speaks about not being under the law, but being under grace. It speaks about it in terms of marriage. It says if you've died to the law, you've died to the law, that you might be married to another. Christ. Resurrected Christ. You were married to the law. This is how it talks about in Romans 7. Now you're married to Christ. So what does it mean? You see, under the law means it's just you and the law. Here's God's righteous standard, and there you are. Can you obey it? Do you have the power to obey this law? Do you have the power in and of yourself? It's just you and the law. Do you have the power to keep it? And the answer is no. And you'll face the condemnation of it if you try. But I'm not under the law. I'm I'm under grace. I'm married to Christ. Now it's not just me and the law. It's me and Christ. Do you catch that? This is so. It's not that the standard of God is dropped and done away with, as if it's the enemy. It's that now I'm married to Christ. Now I have, Romans 6, the power to obey God. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under the law. It's not just you and the law, but you're under grace. You've got grace to obey that thing now. You're not walking around with a vacuum, but it's not plugged in like last week, right? But the vacuum's plugged in. You're under grace. You can actually obey Him. You can walk with Him. A new heart, new spirit that you might obey his statutes and rules. Not under the law, but under grace. You see the difference there? Now, some, many people have been helped by this quote. And people attribute it to John Bunyan. I know many of you know it, but let me just say it. Jo- John Bunyan says, uh, I believe it was him. He says, uh, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. That's to be under the law. The law is not the problem. It's telling me to run. It's telling me the right thing. It's not the problem. The problem is me. I don't have feet or hands. And the law is giving me the standard but not giving me the ability to do it. That's to be under the law. But then he says, but the gospel speaks of sweeter things. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You see, that's under grace. It's not that God's law is dropped and abolished and the standard goes away. No, he still says run. The standard of God is still run. In fact, it goes even beyond that fly. Except the gospel gives you wings to do it. It's to be under grace. Now again, quickly, why am I I telling you this? Because I don't want us to be people that believe because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, and misunderstand that to think, forget about the law of Moses. Forget about God's standard. Forget about obedience. I don't want us to let Romans 6.14 falsely interpret and move us to antinomianism. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, again, I told you this was my longest point. So let me wrap it up like this. In Matthew 5, verse 17, the second part of it, Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen, exalt in Jesus. He's not the law abolisher. He's the law fulfiller. Think about Jesus as one who loved the law. Can you see him saying things like, Jesus saying things like Psalm 119, oh, I love your law. Father, oh, I love your law. It's my meditation. You can see him saying stuff like that. Glory in Jesus. He is unintimidated by the law. 
We look at that righteous, holy standard and we quiver in fear. How will I ever meet up to that mountain of a standard of God? Jesus steps up, unterrified, says, I came to fulfill it. He's the law fulfiller. He fulfills the messianic prophecies. Genesis 3.15, he's the head crusher of Satan. Genesis 12, he's the all nations blesser. Deuteronomy 18, he's the prophet like Moses. Isaiah 53, he's the one that came to die for sinners, wounded for our transgressions, but, then, but that would then rise from the dead and be our king and our savior forever. He's the fulfiller. He's the fulfiller of all the history of the Old Testament. He's the fulfiller of the demands on humanity. Do you realize that? The mountain of a standard and no human has ever met those demands except Christ. He met them perfectly. He came to fulfill all righteousness and he did it perfectly. One more beautiful thought about that. He came even to fulfill the curses of the law on his elect. You know, there's curses in that law. If you disobey the law of God, then a curse reigns over you. It's the wrath of God forever and ever. And he comes not only to obey that law, but then to go to the cross. And the Bible says he became a curse for us. We were under the curse of the law. We deserve hell. And he took our curse. He not only obeyed it, but he took our disobedience and our curse for his elect so that they could be set free from the demands of that law and its condemnation. Jesus has not put aside the law. He's the law fulfiller. Now, second heading. We'll be quick. Is the nature of the written word of God. The nature of the written word of God. Now you see that in verse 18. Notice in verse 18. For, you see it? So that means you're about to get a reason. So Jesus, why are you not here to abolish the law? For, here's, here's the reason, verse 18. For, truly I say to you. That word truly right there, by the way, is a, uh, it's a Greek, it's, it means amen. It's the Greek word Amen. So you think about it, we say when somebody says something that's right, after they say it, we say, Amen. Right? Jesus is so authoritative that he amens himself. And he amens himself before he says what he's going to say. Think about this authority. Listen to it. This is, I mean, truly, amen. It's very important. Listen, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Until all is accomplished. What he just did is tell us something about the nature of the written word of God. Jesus, why are you not here to abolish the law? Because let me tell you something about the word. Let me tell you something about the scriptures. And he tells us something about the nature of the written word of God. Now, what does this verse tell us about the written word of God? Four things. One, the permanence permanence of the word of God. Think about it. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from this law. It's permanent. It's the permanence of the word of God. It is the word of God's rock solid. It's immovable. It's unchanging. It's unshakable. It's the permanent word of God. Think about this phrase until heaven and earth pass. 
pass away. That's telling us that the word of God is more permanent than the world. You think the world around you is so permanent? The heavens and the earth you think it is? Not like the word of God. It's solid. It's steady. It's a rock. Psalm 119 verse 89. I love this, this verse. Let me get to it. It says this. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That's the word of God. Jesus says, why aren't you here to abolish it? Because the the nature of the word of God, it is firmly fixed and unfailing. Firmly fixed in heaven and unfailing. Number two, the word of God is fully inspired or wholly inspired. Uh, I mean, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Fully, wholly, completely inspired. Uh, Every single word divinely inspired by God. That's what I'm getting at. It's wholly inspired. Now I'm getting that from this phrase right here. It says, not an iota. Think about it. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from it until all is accomplished. Now think about that phrase. An iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A dot, just think about your, the Hebrew Bible, it's just you know, a, little, a, a little, little, little a dot, a little scratch mark, right? Just the smallest little thing, not the smallest letter, not the smallest little stroke is going to pass from this law until all is fulfilled. You see how Jesus is talking about the Word of God? How much of it is it inspired? By God. See, people tend to talk about, this is common in our day. Listen, the, the Bible, yeah, sure, it's the Word of God. And what we mean by that is it contains the message of God. God has a message and the Bible contains that message. It's kind of true, but you need to listen to what they're really saying. Because what's being said here is every book of the Word of God, every paragraph, Every sentence, every, every word, every letter, every comma, to use our lingo, every single little bit of it is the word, the holy words of the living God, breathed out by God. Now, I want you to think, if you believe that, how would that affect your quiet time? And so people... That's what some people call them. They call them quiet times with the Lord. You know, get up early in the morning before you got to go somewhere. You call out to the Lord and you open up this book. And it's not that it just contains the message somewhere in there, but but every word, every letter, every iota and dot, this is the divinely inspired word of God. And how does that affect the way you read it in your quiet time? I want to hear from you, Lord. I want to be nourished by every sentence. By every because or therefore, I want to be nourished by it all. I want to understand it. I want to know your word. I want to hear from you, Lord. Every iota, every dot. Again, uh, Psalm 119, verse 160. I love this verse. Listen to this. It says this. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Don't you love that? You got the sum of God's word, and then you got 
every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The whole of it, the big picture of it, and every little piece of it endures forever. This is the holy inspired word of God. Uh, Number three, we see here the inerrancy. The inerrancy of the word of God, meaning it has no errors. It has no mistakes. It says here, every dot, every iota, it tells us that it's purposefully placed there by God and it will be accomplished. Every iota and dot, no errors, no mistakes, no oops. And number four, we see the authority of God's word. And here's what I mean by that, the authority of God's word. Just think about this. Is there any other book like this? Can this be said about any other book? Until heaven and earth pass away, not one little piece of it, the smallest letter, the smallest stroke, will not pass until all is accomplished. Can that be said about any other book? And the answer is no. Therefore, this is the book that we bow down to and obey. This is the book. Christian allegiance is not to books written by men with their philosophies and their thoughts. Christian allegiance is not, our, our, our allegiance is not to the impulses of our own heart. Some people think about that. You know, you got the Old Testament, it was just about the written words of God. And now, you know, we just kind of feel what we need to do is right. No, that's not, our, our allegiance is not to that. Christian allegiance is to this book, God's book, that will never fail. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, to fulfill it. Truly, I say to you, truly, I'm saying this to you, that until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from it until all is fulfilled. Now, uh, quick here on the takeaways. I want to give you some takeaways. Um, here's a takeaway question. How ought we to treat the law and the prophets? How ought we to treat the law and the prophets? We, I mean Christians, how should Christians treat the law and the prophets? Now, we're going to dig into this more, God willing, next week. Because verse 19 says, therefore, and it answers, it answers the question. It, it gives application in verse 19 and 20. But for the sake of us walking away with some things now, I want to just mention real quickly five takeaways. One, what should we do with the law and the prophets? Love it like Jesus. Delight in it. Enjoy it. We should love it. Number two, read it often. Just read it and read it. And when you're done, read it again. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Read all the scriptures. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 and 19, you got that king. And the command to that king was write for yourself a copy of this law in a book. And king, read it. It shall be with you and you shall read it all the days of your life that you might learn to fear the Lord your God. And it'll humble you so that you won't set your heart above your brethren, it says. Read it, read it, read it. Number three, see Christ in it. 
Brothers and sisters, see Christ in it. See Christ in the promises of your Old Testament, the prophecies, the types, the shadows, even the things we don't practice anymore. They're not abolished. Don't just, it's not, we don't read those things anymore. No, read them and see Christ there. See Jesus there. We see Jesus doing that. Luke 24, I believe it's 27, and also verse 46 and 47. He's walking with them on the road to Emmaus and beginning at Moses. And all the prophets, it says, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See Jesus in the Old Testament. Number four, see God's standard of righteousness there. His eternal, perfect standard of righteousness binding on all men everywhere. See it. Go read your Old Testament and see it there. That's what the apostles did. You go read uh, Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. That's written to a bunch of pagans. That's written to a bunch of Gentiles. And what does he say to them? He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Then he says, honor your father and mother. Where's he getting that from? He's talking to Gentiles, and he just went and grabbed the righteous standard from the Ten Commandments and says, honor your father and your mother. For it's the first command with a promise. So do that. Be like the Apostle Paul and see the righteous standard of God in the Old Testament and obey it. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's all kind of things there, not just about uh, murder and adultery and covetousness, but also about compassion to the poor and needy, about justice. All kind of things there. Read it. And then lastly, number five, takeaway is brothers and sisters, don't be an antinomian. Don't be an antinomian. We've warned, we have warned this church many times about being a, a, a latter half Christian. You ever heard that? Or a latter half saints, I think the way we said it. Latter half saints. Meaning, you look at the epistles like Ephesians, you've heard this many times, but hear me out on this. And the first half of the epistle is what Jesus has done for you, what he's accomplished, the dons in Christ, the gospel. And then flowing out of that, the next three chapters, the end of the book, is 50 plus commands to do this or don't do that. Now, a latter half saint takes all the do's and don'ts and forgets about the gospel. What are you doing? But what I'm warning you about today is not be that one that sees the doctrine, loves the gospel, but you're antinomian. You hate the second half of that book that says do this and don't do that. And listen, this is, let me tell you what we don't need. We do not need some, some middle ground between legalism and antinomianism. It's a false dichotomy. It's not real. Okay? It's not like you, know, you need a little bit of legalism, and if it goes a little too far, you need a little antinomianism. It's not like that. You need full-on gospel love. Look at what my Savior has done. Look at who Jesus is. Believe in the gospel. Reminding yourself of the gospel accomplished for you in Christ. Christ has died for you. He's purchased eternal life for you. You need that 100%. And you also need full-out 100%. Therefore, I will obey my King. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Full on. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for these truths. And God, I pray that you'd help us, please. Please protect our church from legalism. Protect our church, God, from antinomianism. God, help us to think rightly about your word. Help us to glory in the gospel.
Give us hearts that long to obey you and diligently obey you. God, fill our hearts with delight in the word of God. Enjoyment of your scriptures. God, fill our hearts with that. All across this room, God, places where we become dull to the scriptures. God, I pray you to awaken our hearts. Give us the diligence, God, please, to daily seek your face in your word. Thank you so much for your help. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.